the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book One, Plan B Revised. Chapter Seven, Thugs and Doom People. As they walked up Route 28, Martin tried not to be obvious about sneaking glimpses at Susan's foot for signs of discomfort. During one of those glances, he noticed that she was looking at his face as much as he was looking at her foot. I was just seeing if your foot was doing okay. Uh, is it okay? Oh, not too bad. You look like you want to say something, he said. I guess so. Her eyes glanced around while she seemed to be gathering resolve. I've just been wondering. Well, wonder out loud. We've got a long stretch of road ahead of us. We might as well make conversation. What have you been wondering? Well, you didn't look, um, grossed out. I mean, when you were holding my foot. Martin laughed. <laughs> well, it's kind of hard to put a bandage on your blister without touching your foot. Yeah, but still, weren't you? You have a plain, ordinary foot, Susan. It's no big deal. How about we talk about something other than feet? Susan nodded, though she did not look satisfied. Up a block, they passed a Walgreens pharmacy on the opposite side of the street. People milled around between the cars and the parking lot. A police car was parked very close to the front door of the building, blue lights flashing. A somewhat portly older policeman stood in front of the door. A few dozen people stood in an orderly line, waiting their turn to be let in, one at a time. Susan gestured toward the policeman. People picking up their heart pills requires a, a cop? Martin shrugged. Well, probably not. Could be they're worried there could be some sort of rush of people off their meds or desperate addicts. Some of them probably ran out of their stash yesterday and can't get any more by their usual sources. In his mind, he was connecting some dots. Pharmaceuticals come by truck. Even illegal drugs are driven in from somewhere else. Local stashes would dry up quickly. Home-brewed meth would fare a little better. Meth also required ingredients that were made somewhere else and trucked in. Would addicts attack pharmacies when their dealer's stockpile ran out? Perhaps that explained the policeman. Would meth makers start raiding people's homes looking for drain cleaner and cold medicine? The average thief looking to steal a TV or a laptop might flee at the sound of a warning shot, but would a desperate addict? Martin wondered what the local policeman-to-addict ratio might be. It probably wasn't good. A pair of thin and nervous-looking young men and a heavy-set woman with purple hair caught Martin's eye. They semi-crouched behind a car across the street from the pharmacy. Maybe it was nothing, or maybe it was trouble looking for opportunity. Martin gestured with the tip of his head toward the trio. That doesn't look good. I don't want to get caught anywhere near another OK corral. Think you feel up to a bit faster pace? Susan nodded. She walked a little faster, leaning a little more heavily on Martin's walking stick as she limped. They heard shouting behind them, but no gunshots. Something was going on in front of that Walgreens. Maybe it was simply people getting impatient and not an attack of some kind. Martin was glad to have put a little distance between them. After getting trapped in the shootout on 93, he was taking no chances. 
Once well past the pharmacy, Susan spoke up. Uh, can we slow down now? My foot feels really hot again. Maybe we could take another break? Oh, sure. Going faster probably didn't help. Sorry. Maybe that was nothing back there, but I didn't want to take any chances. Uh, over there's a good little wall. It felt great to get off his feet. Martin's shins were getting sore, and his feet felt hot, too. He took off his shoes to help cool them. It might uh, help if you took off your shoes, too, he said cautiously. No, no, I'm, I'm fine. Susan, you just said your foot felt hot. It's okay. You don't have weird feet. She frowned. Your foot will feel better if you let it cool off and dry out some. You don't have to take your sock off or anything, if that helps. She looked from her shoe to his face and back several times, as if trying to make up her mind. I tell you what, he said. How about if I turn and face this other way? That way I won't see a thing. He turned, somewhat theatrically, facing up the road. He thought her squeamishness over her feet was silly, but he decided that she deserved some slack. Susan quietly took off her sneaker. Oh, that does feel better. So do I get a turn at wondering? Martin asked over his shoulder. I suppose. I know I said I didn't want to talk about your feet anymore, but now I've gotten curious. If it's not too personal or anything, could I ask why you don't like your feet? I just don't get that. Susan let out a long, slow sigh. <sighs> I never liked my feet, even as a kid. Martin shrugged. <laughs> I'll be the first to admit I was an airhead as a kid, but I don't think I ever once thought about my feet, let alone liking them or not. I was too busy getting them dirty to care. Well, why do you care? I, I don't know for sure. I just thought they were all wrong. I'd look at pictures and catalogs, you know, sandals and flip-flop ads and, and such. I didn't have toes like they did. Theirs were pretty. Mine were ugly. Well, I suppose everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but... Oh, it wasn't just me. Other people said so, too. No way. That, that was just kids being cruel. You know how kids can be. Oh, it wasn't just kids. Mark, my ex-boyfriend, he said so, too. He insisted that I wear socks at all times, and if I forgot, he used to make little jokes about my freaky toes to remind me. What? Martin spun around. He could tell his mouth was hanging open. Why on earth would anyone say such a thing? Susan quickly tucked her left foot behind her right. I don't know. I never thought about it. I thought he was right. Ah, oh, jeez, Martin turned away again. I hope I'm not talking out of bounds, but this Mark guy sounds like a major league jerk. Martin could feel his face getting hot. Susan put on her shoe. We'd better get going, she said flatly. She took her bag by the handle and started walking. Martin quickly put on his shoes and caught up to her. She walked with her head down, brow furrowed. Martin was certain that he had just insulted her. She liked this Mark enough to have him as a boyfriend, at least at first. Was calling Mark a jerk also calling her foolish for liking him? How was he any different? A pot calling the kettle black. To take his mind off of feet and jerks, and hopefully Susan's mind off the same topics, Martin suggested that they drink some more water. He cut off a couple of hunks of cheese for both of them. Susan slowly chewed her cheese without saying anything. Again, she had that sad and puzzled expression. The awkward silence was more than Martin could stand. 
You know, he said, it seems like I'm always being a jerk to you and having to apologize. Susan looked over at him. I'm sorry I spouted off back there, he continued. I really don't know this Mark guy, so I had no right to call him a jerk. I mean, you liked him, after all. It's not like I can talk. She continued to look at him with her sad and puzzled look. Perhaps he had been a jerk once too often, and the damage couldn't be repaired with a mere apology. That's okay, she finally said. You were right. Mark is a jerk. Martin wasn't prepared for agreement. But he was your... I know, but not anymore. He was all charming in the beginning. He opened doors for me, sent me flowers. It was really nice. Well, look, if you'd really rather not talk about all this... Oh, no, no, it's okay. I think it helps, actually. She leaned out and looked up the long stretch of Route 28 ahead of them. It'll help pass the time, like you said. They gave a gas station and its cloud of would-be buyers a wide berth. The people stood in lines with gas cans or leaned against their cars. Very few of them were conversing. Most of them stood with arms folded and frowns on their faces. The scene had the tense air of a forced peace, like a schoolyard brawl broken up by teachers before the kids had settled the score. Mark was really nice at first. At least, he seemed nice. I was fairly new in the area. Didn't know many people. He took me to plays and to the symphony. We went out to eat in cute little cafes and, and even did some museums. We went to gallery openings and harbor cruises. All oh, city life was really glittery and exciting. Looking back now, I wonder if I was more taken in by the glitter than with him. Martin felt like he was eavesdropping on a phone call. Anyhow, after we got serious, I moved in with him. You know, why pay rent on two apartments? Martin squirmed. This was far more information than he felt entitled to. Uh, you know, um, you really don't owe me any explanations. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm rambling. What I was trying to get at was that his, his true colors came out after I moved in. He started to change. It was little things at first. I thought I was doing stuff wrong to make him upset with me. But it got worse, no matter what I did. You know how sometimes people can seem nice, but really they're self-centered, impatient, and actually kind of mean? Martin cringed. Guilty as charged. I know I've been kind of pushing the pace, and... Susan looked up suddenly. No, no, wait, that, I didn't mean it that way. That's okay, it seems like I'm always... Oh, shoot, no, it's just that every hotel you pick turned out to be a failure. Martin winced. Ah, she covered her mouth with both hands. That came out all wrong. I meant that even though every time you tried to help, things went really wrong. Ah, no, 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 that sounded worse. I only wanted to say how, that, that you were, that, that I was, I, I never meant to say that you were, ah. Her arms dropped to her side and surrendered. She heaved a heavy sigh of resignation. I should just shut up. Nothing is coming out right. I know exactly how you feel, he replied. They stood in awkward silence. Martin wanted to promise that he would not say insensitive things anymore, but realized he seemed to have no control over that. Susan squared up her shoulders. What I was trying to explain, and not very well, was that you were right about Mark, being a jerk. He is. And with everything going on around us, and none of it your fault, you've always been, well, thoughtful and going out of your way. In fact, I'm the one who's been the jerk. 
Here you've been trying to get home, and I've been this huge burden slowing you down. She looked aside, almost to herself, she said. Why couldn't I have said it that way the first time? Martin took a deep breath to speak, but Susan raised her hand. Hold on, I, I wasn't quite done. <clears throat> For the record, I never once thought that you were being a jerk. There, now I'm done. Well, for the record, Martin matched her formal tone, I never once thought you were a burden. A little smile eased Susan's worried expression. Martin held up one finger. No, no, wait, there was that one time. Susan's smile evaporated. That time that you made me carry you over that raging river of crocodiles. What? That was so unfair. Oh, stop it, she smacked him on the shoulder in mock rage. She had a sparkle in her eyes that Martin liked much better than her sad, puzzled look. Next time we come to a raging river of crocodiles, I'm going to push you in. Martin pretended to write on an invisible notepad. Note to self. Avoid rivers of crocodiles. Susan snatched away his invisible notepad and pretended to tear it up. That's just dumb. Why would anyone have to write down something like that? My notepad, Martin acted shocked. Oh, stop whining. Susan retorted. Here, you can use mine. She slapped another invisible notepad into his hands. Martin stared at his empty hands while they resumed walking. Uh, but it's pink. Susan pushed him on the shoulder. Whiner. Both of them got a good chuckle. The sidewalks had more people on them. Some had bundles. Martin wondered if they were refugees from downtown or local traffic. If they were refugees, were they on their way to the other outlying hotels? Perhaps they had friends or relatives living nearby? Had they started out in a car but ran out of gas? He wondered where they were all going. The traffic along Route 28 had picked up considerably, both in volume and speed. From the way people revved their engines to accelerate in from the side streets, there was an air of urgency and impatience. Where were they all coming from? were going too, and in such a hurry. It was rush hour on steroids, but in the middle of the day, and a day in which no one was going to work anyhow. Do you think your wife, Margaret, will be okay with me staying a while? Ah, oh, sure, she loves company, Martin said, but as he was thinking, hmm, two hens in a nest, everything will be painfully fine. One of Dante's levels of hell must have been labeled fine. Just promise me you won't rearrange the cupboards, okay? What? Why would I do that? I have no idea, but it's against the rules. Just saying. Martin kept their pace slower than he would have liked. But they had a lot of ground to cover, but he did not want to make Susan's blister get worse, or for either of them to develop any new ones. Letting her use his walking stick helped but she still had a noticeable limp. Slow and steady would trump a faster pace and downtime for more repairs. What if this outage lasts for a month or more? Won't I be a burden on you uh, and Margaret? I mean, the stores up your way will run out too. The trucks aren't delivering. Same down here. I expect you're right, but don't worry about it. We'll be okay. Well, you say that so quickly. I mean... A room with a door is nice and all, but the power's out, and it's October. It's getting colder, and fuel won't be delivered. Aren't you worried? No, I'm not worried. Well, I hope you don't mind me asking all these questions. 
Nah, go ahead. Okay, well, why aren't you worried? I'd like to understand. This whole outage thing has me kind of freaked out inside. Well, you don't look freaked out, Martin said. All right, maybe not wild eyes, flailing arms kind of freaked out. More like really worried and stressed. That kind of freaked out. Most of the people we've come across, like at La Quinta or Andrews or the gas stations, they seem freaked out. Why aren't you? Well, the big reason is that we've got the house pretty well set up. That takes a big load off. Margaret likes to keep a deep pantry, even some boxes of canned goods downstairs, so we'll easily have three or four months' worth of food on hand. Canned goods? Susan sounds surprised. Uh, in the basement? Oh, sure. We can't keep it all upstairs. No room. My point was that we'll be all set for food for a good while, so I don't worry about it. We'll make it work. Oh. Susan did not look as relieved as he thought she would. He wondered if she had an aversion to canned goods. Some people are food fussy that way. This was not a good time to be fussy. They walked in silence a while. She looked at the ground with little frown wrinkles between her eyebrows. Her pace was slowing down. Martin thought maybe she needed more reassurance. It'll be okay, really. Margaret's quite a good cook. You'd never know some of it came from a can. Susan did not look reassured. Martin thought a change of topic would help. Like I said, our, our house will be comfortable enough, even with the power out. It'll just be a little rustic. What? Rustic? Now Susan looked almost upset. Well, yeah, it won't be like living in a cave or sleeping in the woods or anything. I just meant that we wouldn't have all the usual conveniences of on-grid living. But we'll be okay. We've got a wood stove for heat, oil lamps for light, a generator if we need it. I've got a hand pump on the well, so water's no problem. His attempts to reassure her were clearly not working very well. Susan walked slower with her head down. She had more frown wrinkles. He wondered if his own misgivings about how far their food supplies could be stretched, or his growing pessimism about how slowly the grid could be repaired, were somehow leaking out in his tone, or mannerisms. Was he talking peace and plenty, but telegraphing worry and woe? After a long stretch, Susan slowly asked, What about guns? Her face had a sort of pleading look, as if to silently say, Please tell me you don't have any guns. Uh, guns? The question caught Martin off guard. Based on her reaction to guns thus far, it was about the last question he ever expected. Given his apparent total lack of skill at reassurance thus far, he fished for some hints as to just what she meant. Uh, what do you mean, guns? You know, like Mrs. Andrews had behind her counter, she added. Oh, no, no, nothing like that. He wondered where her line of questioning was leading. Is she suddenly worried that I might be some sort of gun-crazed psycho who fantasizes that he's secretly a Special Forces Rambo? Did this all just occur to her? Now she's worried that she's agreed to stay with one of those nutjobs who has an arsenal in his closet, snaps a gasket, drives to a shopping mall, and starts shooting random strangers? Boy, what a mess she must think she's in having to choose between a government gulag, hotel fistfight, or Mr. Mall Shooter. <laughs> Poor thing. He was certainly not a trigger-happy soldier wannabe type. He wanted to reassure her that he was not some gun nut, 
but listing off his firearms did not seem like the best way to make that case. Hmm. Perhaps a little truth is better than too much truth for the moment, he thought. Well, we do keep a small pistol in the nightstand, uh, just for protection around the house, or for like when I'm away on business. That way Margaret isn't home alone without some protection. This was partly true, if only a half-truth. He thought that including Margaret would soften the gun ownership image. The little revolver in the nightstand was hardly the bristling black assault weapon so infamous in gun control press conferences. It seemed prudent not to mention his other pistols or long guns just yet. Oh. Susan still had her look of concentration and worry as she walked, slower still. She did not look reassured in the slightest. Martin decided that he should never try a career as a diplomat or a hostage negotiator. He would starve, and people might die. They walked in silence for another block. Martin's mind replayed as much as he could remember, but could not find an obvious faux pas. How could he have been so utterly bad at being reassuring? After a long silence, Susan asked, in careful, deliberate tones, Martin? Do you think a comet will strike the earth sometime soon? The absurdity of her question made Martin snort and laugh, but he quickly stifled it. Her expression was gravely serious, like a mother asking a doctor if her son would ever walk again. Well, no, I do not think a comet is going to strike the earth soon. Where did that question come from? She stopped and faced him. Really? You don't think about comets, even a little bit? He squirmed slightly at the pop quiz. Should he be worried about comets? Couldn't think of a reason why. Uh, no. Should I? Susan stared skeptically into his eyes for a long moment, as if waiting for him to admit that he really did think about comets. Finally, her skeptical expression melted into a look of relief. She let out a long sigh, took a deep breath, and launched into an avalanche of words. Oh, no, you shouldn't care, and I can't tell you how relieved I am to hear you say that. Of course, I was all happy at first that you offered to take me in. I mean, sure, it's a long walk, but it had to be better than hotels or sheltered, I figured. But then you started telling me all about how your hus was being rustic, she used air quotes, and canned food stored away, and then you said you had a gun, and then I started to wonder if you might be one of those doom people. Doom people? They resumed walking. After a deep breath, another verbal avalanche followed. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what I call them. I heard about them on NPR. Crazy people who think a comet is going to strike the earth, so they plan to hike out into the woods with a backpack full of stuff, to live in the rustic, again with the air quotes, log cabins, and make sausages out of bears or something. They're convinced that a comet is going to turn everything into chaos, so they plan to stay locked up in their cabins, eating canned food from their basements and shooting zombies from their rooftops. What? Martin felt bizarreness overload. Oh, it's true. I saw this show on TV a while back about this weird guy and his weird wife. Oh, they were so weird. They had a basement full of canned goods and an attic full of machine guns, like that lady had back at Andrews and... Oh, you mean preppers. Yes, yes, that's the word. Doom preppers. Doom people. Oh, they were so totally nuts. Underground bunkers, barbed wires, hidden cameras, running around in army outfits like they were special rangers with machine guns, afraid of comets or volcanoes or something, and zombies. What is it with them and zombies? I don't get that. They gave me the creeps just seeing them on TV. I never dreamed that I would, uh, actually, someday... She lowered her voice and avoided eye contact. 
and then you said how you had lots of canned goods in your basement, and your house was rustic and had a gun. So naturally, I started to wonder if you thought, you know, that a comet might be... Oh, no, 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 Martin stopped to face her. He stooped a bit to look in her downcast eyes. It's nothing like that at all. We are not doom people. I am not worried about comets. I do not have machine guns in the attic, and I certainly don't believe in zombies. We just have our house set up to comfortably withstand winter power outages. They happen almost every year, so we try to be ready. That's all. But doom people have backpacks full of stuff, and you have your bag. She pointed at his bag with her eyes. Then it's full of that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, for walking home, not for zombies. Besides, my little first aid things, they came in pretty handy for your blister, didn't they? She responded with a long and reluctant, oh, yeah. Nothing to do with comets or zombies. It's just stuff for uh, a 50-mile walk home from... He was not helping his own case. Martin also resolved to never try to be his own lawyer. He would get himself life without parole for a parking ticket. The worry lines disappeared from her forehead as she smiled slightly. You think walking fifty miles is kind of crazy, too, don't you? He hung his head. Yeah, to be honest, I kind of do. Well, that's good, she said with a wider smile. Well, why? Why is that good? Well, it means I wasn't wrong, after all. Huh, what a relief. Wrong about what? She started walking again, her tone more perky. Well, wrong about you. I much prefer not being wrong, of course. <laughs> I suppose that's pretty typical, huh? Who wants to be wrong? But you thought I was a doom people, and I'm not. Isn't that being wrong? Well, yes, but that's not what I meant. It's kind of a long story. You see, working at the bank, I came to realize that I could read people pretty well. You know, by the way they moved their eyes or the little things they said. I could tell whether they were being honest or stuck up, or if their friendliness was really just an act because they wanted to get something. Like, there was this one guy who was giving off all kinds of bad vibes every week. Shifty eyes, evasive, secretive. I trusted my feelings, and I told Mr. Skinner. They did a little digging, and they found out that he was using his employer's account to make payments to a fake company that was really just him. Turned out I was right about him. I was thinking, oh, hey, this could be a good skill when I become an associate, you know, for loan pre-screening and things like that. And this relates to comets and zombies by... I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Even from the little samples that I got through my teller window, I could tell that deep down, lots of people were truly mean-spirited or full of themselves, and even a few weird ones who, I think, really believed zombies were after them. See, there's the zombies. Anyhow, over the months of you making your EdLogix deposits, my read on you was that you were one of the nice ones. You know, normal. Huh, normal. Well, that's a relief to know, Martin smiled. Well, nowadays, yeah. Normal is kind of rare. Like with this outage, for instance. It's like people's real selves are coming out fast, and it ain't pretty. Most people are totally selfish, just looking for what they can get for themselves and don't care who they step on. For some, their mean streak, oh man, it's running wild. Like those drivers yesterday, or the fighting at La Quinta, and all that shooting on 93. Those people were probably always mean and pushy. This outage just scraped off whatever thin coat of social politeness they might have had. But you, you were going way out of your way to help someone you barely knew. She paused, talking to the ground more than to Martin. That was really nice. 
Martin felt awkward again. Susan resumed. I mean, who does that anymore, right? Everyone's just out for themselves. So I figured I was right. You were nice. But then you started talking about how your house was being rustic and all, and I remembered those wacky doom people, and, well, I began to doubt myself. I mean, what if I had been so upset over my apartment fire and staying in shelters and such that I was accepting help from one of them? I knew you weren't some lecherous creep like the Holiday Inn guy, but what if you were a doom people? I don't think I could handle that. Oh, they're so weird. I decided I had to ask you while we were still inside a 128. If you were one of them, I could still politely decline and go on my way and look for a hotel or, or something. Martin smiled. So now you don't think I'm a doom people? A person? Whatever? Nope. Martin slowed his pace. He subtly held out his hand to catch Susan's arm. What? Why did you slow down? she asked. I'm not liking the scene ahead of us, he pointed with the tip of his head. Several long, plain brick apartment buildings sat very close to the sidewalk. On the front steps of the first building were a half-dozen young men and women. A pair of young men, one in a black do-rag, the other wearing bright orange shoes, leaned on the low chain-link fence at the sidewalk edge, watching the street. What does your people-reading sense tell you about them? Martin asked quietly. She squinted at them. The women leaned against the porch columns in carefully crafted, casual poses. The men leaned on the chain-link fence along the sidewalk, looking up and down the street like raptors. They look like trouble. That's how I read it, too. He slowly took the walking stick from Susan's hand. He felt better with it in his hand. He wondered what he was going to do with it if the porch people made a move on them. Am I going to try to go all bojitsu on them? He wondered. Would all six of them stand obligingly in a ring around him, attacking one at a time like they do in the cheap action films? It seemed more likely that he might hurt one or two of them with his stick, but they would eventually overwhelm him. Or they would grab Susan. Neither sounded good. I think we need to get on the other side of the street now, even if it means dealing with this heavy traffic. As they stepped off the curb to cross, the railing raptor with the orange shoes stood up a little taller and called out, Hey, you guys, what you got in that bag? The young woman with the big hair stood beside him. You got any food in there? We got like starving kids in here. Help like the kids. The rest of the young women stood taller, too, to see what their friends had spotted. Martin glanced at the fast-flowing traffic and back at the young men. He and Susan were between a rock and a hard place. Orange shoes and do-rag began moving towards them. Hey, man, where are you going? We just won't talk, called out do-rag. Martin grabbed the handle of Susan's bag. Come on, we've got to play Frogger again. He dashed through the gap in the first lane. Susan was right behind him. The driver honked, but did not slow down. The young men fanned out, also looking for suitable gaps in the fast traffic. Martin's heart pounded. No good gaps were forming in the traffic flow. They were between the lanes, cars whizzing by just inches away. The young men were just on the other side of the first lane, eyeing gaps to get through. There, he shouted to Susan, behind that white minivan. Ready? One, two, three. They jumped in so near to the minivan's rear bumper that Martin was certain they would smack into it. But since the van was traveling away from them, they didn't hit it. The gap got wider. 
The pickup truck behind the minivan swerved a bit to avoid him, but he didn't slow down either. Martin pulled the roller bag up just in time to avoid it being clipped. Standing on the narrow median, the oncoming traffic seemed to be going twice as fast. The young men had found gaps. Both of them were through the first lane, maneuvering for gaps in the second lane. Judging the gaps in the oncoming traffic was scarier. Martin spotted what might be a big enough gap a little ahead of a gray Chevy. He glanced at Susan to tell her about it, but she was looking back at the young men working the gaps. No time. Martin grabbed Susan's wrist and leapt off the median. Thanks for listening. You can check out all of the books of the Siege of New Hampshire series at mickroland.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-L-A-N-D dot com. Thanks again.